For our debut episode, I sat down with our chairman and owner, Michael Gartner. Michael's had a great career in journalism with stops at NBC News, The Wall Street Journal, and USA Today, in addition to his local impact with positions at the Des Moines Register and owning the Ames Tribune. In this episode, Michael will talk about his memories of professional baseball in Des Moines going all the way back to his youth, share the backstory of how he became the owner of the Iowa Cubs, his unique relationships with former Iowa Cubs managers Mike Quaddy and Ryan Sandberg, and the process and experience of winning a Pulitzer Prize. Here's my conversation with Michael Gartner. For our debut episode of our Iowa Cubs podcast, we're pleased to have our chairman and owner, Michael Gartner, as our guest uh, today. And Michael, uh, not everybody uh, that grows up a baseball fan gets the chance to own a minor league baseball team someday. Um, You have to be in the right place, the right time, and a lot of factors go in. What were the circumstances that allowed you to uh, realize your baseball dream of being a, a minor league owner or, or it, it, at least embark on this journey? At the time, in the late 90s, the team was owned by Kenny Granquist primarily, and I owned the Ames Tribune, a newspaper up in Ames. And I was sitting at my desk one day, and the phone rang, and it was my good friend Michael Giudicesi, who I'd, was a lawyer in town who I'd worked with for a long time and was a friend. and. And he called me, he says, I heard the Cubbies are for sale. And I said, so what? He says, I think we ought to buy them. And I says, what do you mean we? I says, you don't have any money. He says, that's why I said we. And so I called up Kenny Granquist down here at the ballpark. And I said, hey, I heard that you're thinking of selling the Cubbies. He says, where'd you hear that? And I said, does it make a difference? He says, well, he says, I guess not. He says, what if I were thinking of selling? He says, I said, well, if you were thinking of selling, I might be thinking of buying. He says, come on down. So I went down that afternoon and bought the team. I had no idea if I'd paid too much, too little. I had no idea what it was worth. He mentioned a price, and I thought, well, we can do that. We, Mike and I can do that. <laughs> and, and so uh, uh, I bought it. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, and we had a handshake deal. And then on opening, opening day, uh, a few weeks later, he was in his suite up here, and he had a stroke or a heart attack, and he died. And... Nobody knew I'd bought the team, and uh, then, and nobody knew it was for sale. And then would-be buyers came out of the woodwork. So I went to his widow, and I said, "You know, I had a deal with Kenny to buy it." And she says, "Yeah, I know it." She she said, uh, "But you know, there's a lot of other people want to buy it," and uh, so she raised the price. Uh, but I said to Judas, "Should we do it?" And he said, "In for a dime, in for a dollar, my dollar." Uh, and so. Uh, uh, we bought it, and it was, it was great. Uh, uh, we hadn't owned it very long, and I got a call from Branch Rickey, the president of the Pacific Coast League, and he called me up and congratulated me on buying the team. And he said, how does it feel to have just paid more money for a minor league baseball team than anybody in history? I said, well, I really, was really happy about the purchase until this phone call. <laughs> but it's, it was good. And, 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 you know, everybody says I own the team. But, in fact, my family and I own 70.5% of it. Mike owns 235 Sam Burnaby owns 5%, and Doug Dorner, uh, a doctor in town, owns 1%. His dad had been a minority owner when Kenny owned it, and we bought out all the minority owners, but I knew Doug since we were boys. And I said, you know, you're cra- I'll buy you out. It was a pretty good price. You're crazy to stay in, but you can stay in if you want, but only after you talk to both your lawyer and your accountant. <laughs> and he called me back, and he says, I've talked to my lawyer and accountant, and they told me not to do it, but I'm in. 
And so uh, he's been our partner also for the last uh, 20 years. Now, and it's been, it's been great. Now, I understand that it wasn't just as simple as getting in the car and coming down for that meeting, that there was an adventure on the way to Oh, yeah, to we, had, we, had, we had to meet with, we we're going to meet with Mrs. Granquist, with Linda and her advisors. And uh, Mike and I were driving, driving down, uh, and we got stuck by, stuck by a train over on the east side. And I said, we're going to miss the meeting. And she was going to sell it to somebody else. We're going to miss the meeting. And the next day there was a paper, a picture in the paper of this train going by and me standing there waiting for the train to get by. So I said to Linda, I said, you know, it was a legitimate excuse. We couldn't get around the, around the train. So, uh, so we bought it and she was happy and I was happy and Mike was happy. Everybody's been happy. And then you moved on this side of the train track so you'll never be late to the <laughs> yeah. ballpark Well, I didn't again. have to drive down to Mames anymore. <laughs> Visiting with Michael Gartner and, and, and talking about uh, lots of different memories as part of the broadcast today and um, becoming the owner of the team follows along with a long history that you had as a boy growing up in Des Moines and coming to baseball games um, a long time before it was the Iowa Cubs and, and, and AAA baseball. What are some of your, your memories uh, coming well, to games with, your, with think, your dad? I think, but I'm not sure that I was at the first game ever played in this park, which would have been in June of 47 or 48. Uh, my dad was a big baseball fan. He, he had started out as a sports writer. And uh, so uh, he taught me how to keep a box score when I was young. And he taught me, he said the only two things that he ever taught me in, in my life were how to keep a box score and how to type. And they've been the only two skills I've ever really needed. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I think I was at the very first game down here. And and I'd been, then we came down a lot afterward. He didn't drive. We, we uh, take the streetcar down or a friend, we'd come with a, one of my buddies and his dad and they'd, they would uh, drive. And then when I was 15, I went to work in the sports department of the Register and Tribune, uh, uh, answering the telephones. There was no internet in those days. And as a dictation typist, because sports writers would go and cover something and then they'd call it in. And I could type faster than most people because my dad had made me learn when I was 10. And, and uh, often, uh, and sometimes before late at night, I'd just come down here and sneak in and watch a game and then go back to w- work. And I was at one game one time, and, and a guy was kicked out. Uh, and it was unclear to me why. And after the game, the umpires would often come up to the sports department and wait for Bill Bryson uh, to uh, finish writing his story, and then uh, they'd go out for a few beers. And so the, umpire, the umpires were up there, and I went up to them and I says, hey, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. And I says, I was at the game tonight. And you kicked somebody out and says, what, did he, what can you say? What do you have to say to an umpire to get kicked out? And he says, anything that ends in you. And, and so uh, I remember that uh, uh, also. So, uh, yeah, it was, I came down here a lot. It was lots of fun. Uh, you know, the old ballpark, uh, well, the ballpark, this, this is, there were lots of ballparks before this one. And, and the main one where the, First, you have to be very careful how you say this, the first organized baseball game with permanent lighting at night was played. You know, there's, you have to make, there's a lot of qualifiers in there. was up at uh, Sixth and Holcomb, where North High School is. And uh, it was a big deal. I think it was in the 30s sometime. I can't remember the date. And Bob Feller told me one time that he was at that game. Bob, Bob Feller was a great storyteller, but you always wanted to, you know, you needed fact checkers. And, and, and he said, I was at that game. And he says, you know, they, they roped off the, out- there were so many people at that game, they roped off the outfield so people could stand around. And I'd seen pictures, and they did. And he said, and so as a result, you know, 
He said a lot of balls were hit in there. He says there were more doubles, that would be a ground rule double, there were more doubles hit in that game than in any game in baseball history. I says, no kidding. Well, as it happened, we had the box score down here at the ballpark, and so I came down the next day and I looked, there were three doubles in that game. <laughs> but it was a great story. <laughs> never let the facts get in the way of a, right. good, of, a good, never of a good baseball story. Uh, what, uh, what was it about coming to those games or about the game of baseball that, that caught your attention? I, when I, I was little? For, yeah, for all of us working in the game, there had to be something that got in our blood and, and got in our system about the game of baseball because it, uh, it, it, it's not the most glamorous thing in minor league baseball the pace, all the time. The pace. Uh, no clock. And the beauty of it, you know, later when I grew up, uh, I was having lunch one day when I was the editor of the Register, and, and uh, there were a bunch of old guys talking about baseball, and there was a very burly executive in town, kind of a gruff guy, and he said, you know what's great about baseball? And I said, what? And he says, it's like ballet. He said, you look out, and everybody's moving. <clears throat> everybody's moving. Uh, kind of in coordination with each other, and it takes these great muscles. He says it's very much like ballet, and I'd never thought about it, but it is. It, it is, you know, they're coordinated, the way people move. Uh, uh, new batter comes up, they're shifting shift positions, and this was before there were uh, shifts, uh, you know, sure. infield shifts when <laughs> batters came up and everything. But uh, just the beauty of it, the pace, the pace of it, uh, and the fact that uh, you could identify with a player even in class, this was Class A Western League in those days, and, and uh, uh, but you could identify with a player and follow him through, and and the, the box score, the intricacy of a box score is really neat. You know, nobody keeps a bo- nobody goes to a football game and keeps a box score or a basketball <laughs> game really and keeps a, keeps track of assists and and uh, unforced errors and everything. But you come to a baseball game, and even now you you look out in the uh, you look out in the stands, and there's people out there bring their own scorebooks and they. Uh, they watch. You know, half the people out there don't know don't know who you're playing. Uh, True. But there's this core who come down and they know every player and they keep all the box scores and then they keep them at home and they look back and they'll say, you know, last year when this guy came through from when this when this guy came through from Salt Lake, you know, he went 0 for 4 against so and so. And I mean, you know, it's just the everything about it. Everything about it is great. Well, uh, a lot of interesting parallels to being a journalist and, and telling stories. Every baseball yeah. game is a story to tell in and of yeah. it of itself. As a as a broadcaster, that was you know, it was never two identical baseball games right. uh, ever, and you always had something. Uh, even if it was eleven to one, if you knew the story behind the story, there was something else interesting in the seventh That's inning right. that might or might not happen. And if you knew the you... one, they got the one when there was a, 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 a suicide squeeze or yeah. or, or, uh, or something like that. Uh, yeah, and the other thing about baseball and journalism is every day is a new day. You know, it's not with all due respect to my friend Judas Sessi and all the lawyers I, <laughs> I know, you know, who will, work, who will work some of them years on one case, you know. Uh, tomorrow's a new day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing about baseball I find most interesting is the people. Uh, all around it, the fans, yeah. the umpires, the players, the managers, the people that, that work in the game. Uh, who are a couple of relationships that you've developed through baseball that you never would have had the opportunity uh, to come across uh, if not for your involvement in the game and, and, and people that mean a lot to you because of it? The person I enjoyed the most was Mike Quaddy, who was the manager here for four and a half, maybe five years. I'm a pretty liberal Democrat, and he's a pretty conservative Republican. 
He's real smart, and he's just fun to talk to. And so I would go down to the dugout every night before the game, and we'd sit there for 10 minutes and talk, and people thought we were talking about baseball or something like that. And we were usually talking politics or things, or things like that. And he was just fun, fun to talk to. He, he, he could tease and be teased, uh, which is a great uh, ability. He could, he could take it and he could, he could give it, which made it, made it lots and lots of fun. And the, uh, one time uh, I said to him, you ever heard of a man named Norman Borlaug? Norman Borlaug won the, won the uh, Nobel Peace Prize. He saved more lives than anybody in history when he invented the Green Revolution. He was a farm boy from Cresco, Iowa who went to uh, the University of Minnesota, and I'd gotten to know him over the years. And, and uh, one night we were having dinner in Des Moines, and he said, you know, he said, I could have been the shortstop for the Chicago Cubs. And I said, you know, and I could have won the Nobel Peace Prize. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, I was a pretty good baseball player, and I was on the baseball team at the University of Minnesota. And my junior year, I had to make a choice between a forestry lab, taking the forestry lab, which I needed, or staying on the team. So, so I took the lab. He said, if I had stayed on the team, he said, I, I would have been a major leaguer and, and I, I would have been, uh, uh, you know, well-known guy. I said, yeah, you could might have achieved some fame, Norman. But anyway, I said, why don't you come down and throw out a first pitch some night? So he said, I'd love to do it. Oh, he was just all excited about it. And by this time, he's probably into his 90s. Not that that's old. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I went to Quaddy and I said, I was talking to him. I said, you ever hear of a guy named Norman Borlaug? He said, Norman Borlaug, the great scientist, the guy who, the guy who saved all those lives, the Green Revolution guy? He says, of course I've heard him. One, he said he won a Nobel Peace Prize. Why? And I said, well, I said, he's going to throw out the first pitch tomorrow night, and he's a huge baseball fan, and he wants to meet you. He said, well, I really want to meet him. Well, it was a Friday night. So I said, okay. So Norman goes out, and there's 10,000 people here, and Norman goes out to the mound to throw out the first pitch, and after he's done, I walk Quaddy out to the mound to meet him, to shake hands. And we're about halfway between the mound and home plate. And I introduce him, and, and uh, Quaddy says, it's such, a, such an honor to meet you, uh, Dr. Borlaug. He says, I have a question. And Borlaug says, what's, what's that? Uh, and he says, is there anything wrong with genetically modified foods? <laughs> and I'm saying, what's this? And Borlaug says, of course not. He says, that's what hybrid corn is. That, there's nothing wrong at all. So then Quaddy looks at me and says, see, he says, all you liberal sons of <laughs> He says, there's absolutely nothing, nothing wrong with it. This is the greatest man in the world. There's nothing wrong with it. And meanwhile, Quaddy is saying, but if it's a left-handed batter, and the, wouldn't the second baseman want to move just a little bit more, a little bit more to his right? And... and Quaddy wants nothing of that conversation. He says, he says, what about, what about, what about milk? What about, what about milk, you know, that they add these things to? And, 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 I'm, and this conversation going on for five or six minutes, and I'm looking up in the crowd, and I'm thinking, if anybody up there, nobody up there can possibly believe what this conversation is, is about out here, out here. And they both had a wonderful time. Uh, so uh, he's, a, of all the guys here, he was the most fun, I think. You know, they're all fun in there. In a way, Sandberg was fun. Sandberg uh, 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 was uh, easy to talk to, and uh, uh, fun. And, and his wife was very nice. One one time, <laughs> one time, it was a, kind of a chilly night, and I was up in the suites up here in the press box, and I was walked by, and there was uh, Mrs. Sandberg and uh, the wife of Mike Mason the uh, pitching coach, and they were in eating a sandwich. And I walked by and I said, what are you guys doing? He says, oh, it's kind of cold outside. We decided to eat up here. And I says, 
do you want something to drink? So they said, what? And I said, you want a glass of wine or something? And they said, sure. And I said, well, there's lots of wine. I don't drink, but I said, there's <laughs> lots of wine down in the box down there. Come on, then we'll go down. And so we went down to the box, and there were two guys from the Chicago Cubs sitting in there. And they, were, they didn't say anything. They were just watching me and everything. And so I opened the refrigerator. I said, you know, take your pick. I don't know good wine from bad wine. And I'm sure there was both in there. And they said, how about that right there? So I said, okay. So I got out a corkscrew and I'm trying to open it. And Jesus, I can't get the, I can't get it open, you know, and I'm, I'm doing everything. I can't get it open. And finally, uh, I, I think it was Mrs. Mason said, perhaps you should try to unscrew it. <laughs> it was just a w- wine with a cap on it. So I said, okay. And then didn't pour them a glass and put the bottle back in and we walked out and about five minutes later, just by coincidence, Sam Burnaby, the general manager here, my partner, and my wife happened to walk by and saw us and walked in. And Burnaby says, oh, man, he says, those guys from Chicago threw you under the bus to your wife. <laughs> says, says, we happened to walk in there after you. And they said, your husband is the dumbest guy there's ever been. He doesn't even know how to open a wine bottle. And they went on and on and on about it. And meanwhile, Sam had the bottle with him. And, and so he said to the ladies, he says, you know, I've got the bottle if you, want, if, if you want to polish it off. So they each had another glass of wine, and that was it. And the next morning, I came into work, and there was the bottle of wine on my, the empty bottle on my desk. And in Sandberg's writing on the label, it says, Hey, Michael, it says, looks like you were poking when you should have been screwing, rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> I still got the bottle down there. Uh, oh, so, man, they, they never let you forget. No, 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 uh, they uh, never. Uh, that's, the, that's one thing. They're just unforgiving. <laughs> They're just unforgiving about it. Uh, uh, everything about it. That, that's why uh, hitters get hit by a pitch nine years after they flip the bat in a spring training that's game right. against a pitcher. Right. They, they never they, forget they, any they, of those they, kinds they of things. They never, ever forget. You, know, you mentioned Sandberg, and for me, that season was a real education of understanding what it's like to be in proximity to famous people. Yeah. You're <laughs> long, or, we're, I, I would say that you're probably really well-known but I've observed you in public. You don't get interrupted on a no. constant basis uh, unless it's by people that, that you know. Yeah, and, um, and, my fa- and my family doesn't want anything to do with me, so they, <laughs> so they don't come up and, and, and interrupt. But, uh, but between baseball and, and, and your time in, in journalism and, and especially your time at NBC, you've been around a lot of famous people, and, and Sandberg was the most uh, obvious example of that for me. But what, what did you learn over, over your career about um, – being in those circles and the, and the and the funny things that happen because people lose their minds when they realize who who they're who they're close to sometimes. Yeah, some of them walking through an airport with Willard Scott. Willard Scott was the weatherman for for the Today Show for years and years and years, and he was kind of a character, kind of a, a bumpkin in a way. And walking through an airport with him. Whereas I could walk through, walk it in three minutes, it would take him a half an hour, all the people coming up and coming up. And he was out, came out to Des Moines with me one time. Uh, one of the things at NBC, I, 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 I could pick six charity events that he had to go to every, every year at no fee. And so my wife was running a charity event for something, I don't know what it was. And I said, I'll get Willard out here and they'll do a plug on the Today Show. And, and uh, so we came out the night before and, and we were going to go to dinner at the doesn't exist anymore. I think it was called Roses over on Southwest Ninth, Italian place. And my wife and I and he and I think another couple uh, were having dinner. And the check came. And the waitress gave it to me and I went to pay it. And Willard said, what are you doing? I said, I'm paying the check. He says, why? And I said, well, because we ate here. <laughs> and the check. He says, no, no. He says, you're with me. He says, 
nobody, I've, I haven't picked up a check forever, which I believed. He was very, very tight. I said, I said well, I live here. I'm going to pick up, pick up the check. He said, you're just nuts. You're just nuts. You shouldn't have to pay for this meal. He says, we've been sitting here. He says, probably 15 people have come up to ask me for my autograph, which is true. While we're, while we're sitting here, you know, they all come up and say, I'm sorry to bother you, Mr. Scott. But, and, uh, but I couldn't help myself. Yeah, and uh, uh, so there, there's a fame, and, and a lot of them have sort of defense mechanisms about how to deal with it. But... Uh, but they're great, you know. I mean, Joe Garagiola was the greatest of all one time. He, he was at NBC for two years. And uh, so I liked him a lot and his wife. I liked them both a lot. And so about every two weeks, we'd go out to dinner. And they were always the same place, a restaurant about six blocks from where I lived in, in New York. And in New York, I had a car and driver. And so they'd take us down. And, and if, was, if Joe and his wife were there, I always tell the driver to wait and to take them home because they lived uptown. And so one time... It was kind of uh, about 10.30 at night, and we were walking out, and the driver was there, and, and I said, take Joe, and I can't remember his wife's name, really nice lady, uh, home, and, and Joe said, get in the car with us. We're going to take you. I said, Joe, I just live four blocks away. I need to walk off this dinner anyway. <laughs> no, damn it, get in the car. I said, Joe, Joe, I, I live here. I know this neighborhood. I live here. He says, get in the car. I said, what's this all about? He says, look, he says, if something happens to you, I lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we're visiting with Michael Gartner today on this uh, debut episode of our Iowa Cubs uh, podcast. And uh, speaking of of famous people and, and being well-known and, and, and things, we've mentioned the Nobel Peace Prize. But um, you have a very distinguished acclaim in, on your resume as having won a, a, a Pulitzer Prize. I did. And i never met another Pulitzer Prize winner. I've never met any Nobel Peace Prize winners. I've met a few MVPs and Cy Youngs, but that is a whole a different scale of things. So I imagine more people are like me than not. How in the world do you even get in the consideration for something like that? I think about the Hall of Fame and you're sitting in a room where you get a call. Or How does, how does all of that work? You have to have a really good curveball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just uh, you get nominated. Uh, I think uh, my partner names paper nominated me, and then it goes through a process through a juror, jury. You know, maybe 500 people are nominated for that category, and then uh, juries look at it, and then they pick maybe the. They keep winnowing the pile until they finally come down to the top three or five, and that goes to the Pulitzer Prize board in New York, which is 15 or 16 editors and and uh, academics and the president of uh, Columbia University. Uh, and then they debate for two for two days, uh, and then they bestow it on you, and then they give it to you, and then the next day you go to work. <laughs> was that ever something that you considered as a goal of yours? Is no, that like the Hall no, of Fame, no. where if if it happens no, at the end of your no, career, you don't right? set out to do something like that. You know, it's it's a lot of luck, a lot of timing. Uh, a lot of who was on the jury, that, what kind of stories did the jury like, you know, or, or things like that. Uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's an honest process. I happen to be on the, I think I'm the only person who ever won a Pulitzer Prize after being on the Pulitzer Prize board. The Pulitzer Prize board, which rotate, you can be on it for nine years. I was on it for 10. I had one stub year. And, but uh, it's, uh, you can't win if you're on the board, but it's full of people who'd won them before they went on the board. And most of them by that time are publishers or editors or something. But uh, when I was on it, I was the editor of the Des Moines Register. Uh, but then later, uh, 
two friends and I bought the Ames Tribune, and I wrote, after I left NBC, I wrote every day, and I was writing the editorials, and I was long gone from the poster board. And so I was one of the few guys who was still, was still writing. But it's really, it's really, really interesting, like, especially when you do about the novels and, and uh, nonfiction and everything, because you read all these novels. You, you just get inundated with books to read at home and, and, and everything to be prepared for the meeting. And so you settle on something, you say, I know this is the winner. It's so far above. And then you go into the meeting, and here's all these great academics and these smart guys and, and men and women and, and uh, poets and everything. And, and all of a sudden, nobody likes this book. <laughs> or three other people like this book. And you go around, and there's these, there's these great debates about it and, uh, and, and everything. And I remember one time it came down. And, and you vote, and you vote. And I remember one time I was, uh, I was really pushing for a biography of something. I can't remember what it was. And uh, uh, Mike Sovereign, the president of Columbia University, was a great guy, was pushing the other. And so we go around, and it's eight, and I'm sure I'm going to win. I mean, I'm going, and it's eight to seven against me. And he looked over at me, and he says, you may be a great editor, but you don't know how to count votes. <laughs> So some poor guy or woman lost a Pulitzer Prize because of one vote, and they'll never know that. You know, they'll sure. never, they'll never, they'll never know that, and and uh, which is really, really too bad. But uh, uh, it's 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 interesting, it's fun, and winning one. I happened to be the president of the Pulitzer Prize board on the 75th anniversary of the prizes, and so they invited every living Pulitzer Prize winner to this big banquet at uh, Columbia University. And it was full of poets and historians and great editors and great reporters and, you know, just jammed thing. And the, and the master of ceremonies was a guy who was also on the Pulitzer board, a guy named uh, a great uh, uh, columnist for the New York Times named Russell Baker, one of the great columnists all time, so, and very droll guy. And he gets up and he looks out at this, this assembled masses of all these men and women, you know, and he looks and he says... I know the first line of the obituary of everybody in this room. <laughs> and that's really what it is. It's the first, you know, there's, I think the prize was $3,000 and a little glass uh, uh, something, but uh, uh, it is, it's, a, it's an obituary changer. Well, it's a, it's a great honor. Uh, and, and I have to say that I use that uh, over the heads of our media relations interns from time to time to make sure that they're diligent in their grammar and their punctuation. I said, you can't write for this organization <laughs> and send out bad work. We have a higher standard to hold ourselves to uh, when it comes to those things. <clears throat> I yeah, well, to- I'm, I'm basically a, was a newspaper man, you know, all my life. My dad was a newspaper man. My mother's father was a newspaper man. And uh, uh, I knew from the time I was a kid that that's what I wanted to be. So it was... Uh, uh, just kind of, and, and my brother was a newspaper man for a while till, before he got into politics, and and uh, uh, it's just uh, kind of in it. Yeah, you know, it's in the genes. Well, if you're going to do it, do it well, and you certainly. I, mean, have, I can't have pound done. a nail. I mean, my best friend from college, his dad was a carpenter, and and you know he can build. He, he became a lawyer, but he can build all these things and everything. You know, and I I say, how do you do that? And he says, how do you write a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed our debut episode of Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast with our chairman, Michael Gardner. We'll have more with Michael in our next episode, talking about his work with Judge Pratt to bring our annual citizenship ceremony to the ballpark, Michael's love of dog days at the ballpark, and the missed opportunity to bring minor league baseball to Dubuque, among other topics. 
Be on the lookout for that episode and a two-part interview with Tommy Birch of the Des Moines Register coming up later this month. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Randy Wayhofer. Thanks for listening to Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast.